0: I've heard The Mermaid's Singing is a charming and whimsical story about a daydreamer with artistic aspirations. Patricia Roosevelt's fanciful character study follows an amateur photographer, Polly, as she lands a temp job at a Toronto art gallery run by an elegant and sophisticated owner, Gabrielle, who is also a painter. Polly is impressed with Gabrielle's paintings, but as Polly gets to know Gabrielle's lover, Mary, she soon realizes that Gabrielle isn't exactly who she appears to be. The film is called. I've heard the mermaids singing, and we're joined today by the director, Patricia Rosema. Patricia, welcome to Film School Radio.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for your interest.
0: I believe you're also the writer and and the editor on the film as well. Is there any other hats that you are wearing that I'm yeah. I'm leaving <laughs> I, off?
1: I, I may have gone around on my bicycle to find the locations. To be <laughs> honest, and I was co-producing it. Yeah, it's. It's that was the story in Canada at the time you just kind of by hook or by crook found the money and pulled together like minds and
0: The one man band approach to filmmaking
1: When I was editing for instance I was offered the opportunity by some people at the National Film Board where I was editing I was you know borrowing space there at night and they said you know, do you want to have uh, Ron Sanders, who was Cronenberg's uh, editor, have a look at it? And he, he came in for three days and did wonders on it, too. So I, I I certainly had help. Well, where did this story come from? It's kind of like, I think I've, I've since discovered that a lot of filmmakers work this way. You make a film that's this and then you want to go the next time you want to do something that's the alternative. And then they, you, you're, you're reacting against yourself to stay interested and discover different kind of colors in your palette. So I had made a short film called Passion, a letter in 16 millimeter, which was quite serious and uh, you know about a successful career woman who was struggling with toll that took on her personal life. So there's the, the different passions and how they are at war with each other. And then I was, by the end of that, I was sick of it. And I thought, I want to do an unsuccessful career woman. So that that's where kind of the idea of Polly came from. And then I just kind of fell in love with this person who was just not groovy or, you know, or sexy or successful by anyone's normal standards that she just kind of, her clothes were kind of out of date, her rhythms were awkward, her her social skills were Painful at best, and so I, I, and and I find embarrassment and and, and awkwardness of you know a, a, a rich uh, source of humor. Like I think we're all really terrified of being embarrassed and of being awkward and of being, uh, losing our dignity in front of others. I think that's like one of our most profound drivers, and and it's a source of wars. You know, like with these egotists who just can't stand to be seen as less than respected and. So I find um, that, a, and I love it, and I love it as a source of humor. Like, um, you know, the, she always seemed like Buster Keaton to me. So I fell in love with her personally, and then I wanted her, oh, I, actually a real source was, was um, I got a really bad review for my first film. And then I thought, oh my God, what can I, I can't, like, this is too painful. I don't know if I'm up for this game where you get like publicly humiliated, that's camp. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to have someone who does it for the right reasons and and explore that public humiliation and, you know, just just problematize that issue. Is it enough to do it because you love it, even though you don't think that people will respond? Is it enough to hear the mermaids singing, but no, as the T.S. Eliot poem continues, they will not sing for me? Do you keep doing it, even if you think you might not be that good at it? And um, my answer had to be yes because uh, you, you know I just 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 do it because you need to and 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 if you do it honestly maybe there's hope that some other people will will respond to it so yeah it was a it was my own self help movie <laughs> you know it was my own um, uh, encouragement to keep going even if I wasn't going to be respected in the field and that seemed like a valid. Uh, enterprise to me and then I thought maybe others who were feeling the same thing would sing along with me you know or there you go
0: there you go well we will talk more about the kind of the process part of the, the your journey in making I've heard the mermaids singing I'd like to talk about Sheila McCarthy and how you found her the lead character Polly because I just want a quick comment on the idea of vulnerability embarrassment that the, you know putting yourself out there Obviously, that's always, or at least as far as I know, almost always the case with an artist puts his art in front of other people. You run that risk. But also in the case of Polly, that vulnerability, that, that exposure really makes her such a likable and relatable character. She is all of the things. She's sort of this pure id of creativity, right? She is unfettered. She does it because she loves it. Uh, and watch and there's a wonderful little sequence at the beginning of the film when she's scaling I want to give too much away but scaling the side of the building and there's kind of things that are going on that gives you this sense of she's in it because this is something she feels she has to do am I being fair to Polly and all of that
1: oh yeah no more than fair um yeah, she does it because she has to do it. She does it because I mean that's what art is a, a and writing and, and image making is a desire I think to transform our experience into another form and it's almost it, it it's a it's a virus or it's a <laughs> an inclination that some people have and you know some people are well received when they do it and some people are completely ignored when they do it but. I think the need to do it has to be honored and, and there has to be a way to uh, find expression of an artistic form if, if, if you have that need. And I guess I, I really felt that I thought, even if I am going to be laughed at, I need to do this. I will, I will, I will do this and I'll have to keep, maybe the budget's really low and I have to not expect to make, you know, film festivals to respond, which I'd never expected in a million years anyway. So I was fine from the get go there. Just do it because it gives pleasure do love the doing I, I felt like that was a important message and well, how, how did
0: how did uh, Sheila McCarthy come into your life?
1: Oh um I, auditions you know the scripts really rung uh, true for uh, several people and that was if I'm ever to speak to young filmmakers, it's uh, make sure your script gets a good response because I had people saying, Calling me up after hours, saying, "I'm not calling you as this official funding body. I'm calling you as an individual." This moves me so much. I'm going to do everything I can to help you get this made. You know that told me something. And a you know major casting director at the time, Maria uh, Armstrong, you know who, who did you know was very well funded in other things, did this pro bono for me to help me find actors. And she brought in you know, and I was terrible I wanted to see everyone I didn't want to just see the usual suspects I didn't just want to see who was already in the you know uh, films you know Sheila hadn't been in a film before she'd been in theater and dance and so Maria cast a very wide net and I saw people sometimes two three four and five times to make sure that I had the right person Sheila was getting very frustrated me with the at the end I, I, I immediately had a sense that she had the humor she had the completely engaging kind of otherness to her but she was really appealing but she wasn't classically beautiful but she was beautiful and so anyway I had hopes right away and um then she just proved that she was the perfect perfect one for it and we just started laughing together right away so if you can find a humor together then you know you've got something it's it's a because it's not given to everyone some extremely talented actors can't like they can make any joke fall flat, you know, so, and other people, they can just take a kind of an ordinary line and give it bounce. So um, she's definitely one of those. And yeah, she was, I was very, very, very uh, lucky to have her come along and 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 help make this thing fly.
0: She's very funny and vulnerable, which really invites you into, into her life in a way that resonates. She never
1: smiles, right? She never smiles. She's just this kind of like, I always thought of her as a little bird that had just been hatched, and I loved that as the, the character. Um, I My my approach on the script was to um, draw on three sides of myself. I don't know if I'd read that before, but I have since read that some writers work that way, is you take sides of yourself that are in conflict with each other and then amplify each into a character. So the curator, Mary and Polly, were all you know aspects of my own wrestling with what it was to be an artist or to try to be one and, and maybe not succeed so the, the the kind of the value of that approach is that you understand each of them and each of them you can like the curator who's someone who recognizes beautiful art but is terrified that she might never be able to make it Mary the one who made these paintings you know is can make them, but just can't deal with the public side of things and is afraid that she's gonna become a, I don't know, just like a, a representation of herself. And and then Polly, who just wants to make things and is watching from the outside with sense of wonder and um, tons of self-doubt, you know? Those, I put those three in the mix and then this story came out.
0: Well, to let people know that uh, I've heard the mermaids singing is being re-released through Kino Lorber. It's also going to be available theatrically here in Los Angeles. It'll be playing at the Alamo Draft House, And that's- I'll be
1: there. You'll I'll be, be there, there for a Q and A? Yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, great, oh, yeah. fantastic.
1: A couple of nights, um, yeah. I, it's on for three screening.
0: Okay, it starts on March 18th, which is Friday.
1: Really cool space, I'm just so honored to be there. Um, I Keno is incredible this has been a big honor for me to have them take interest, and you know we're in conversation about releasing the rest of my work later, so that you know mermaids is like the soft launch of a bit of a retrospective and uh, so that is, you know. And, and to get theatrical release for a film that's 35 years old is really feels like a special honor and it's beautiful restored print. The Toronto uh, F- Film Festival did a restoration and, and we got to, you know, really um, amplify um, uh, this, you know, modern technology allows me to sort of, I, I think it's a way to, It's if there's a way to see it, that it's this, you know, yeah. in the theater with people in a rest, restored print. So I hope people come.
0: Yeah, and- as we spoke about before we started the more formal part of our conversation as a former projectionist i wholeheartedly endorse that idea of going to a a theater to see a film i i say the same thing all the time I'm, i'm repeating myself but there's nothing better than to go and sit in a darkened room with a bunch of strangers on a big watching a big screen and then on top of all of that you have the opportunity to talk with the uh, the person who who made all of it happen and it's a it's a terrific experience even if you're not there it's still a terrific experience but nonetheless to be uh at the Alamo Draft House uh, this the weekend of March 18th be checking on that and you should be there for that
1: thank you so much for highlighting it you know that's I'm. I'm just a tree falling in the woods without you talking about it. So I really. <laughs> well, I, there are a couple of things. I mean, we. I, I don't think I've
0: given quite a due uh, to the idea of Polly as a photographer, as someone who is an aspiring artist in this environment of being in the gallery. That's a big part of the story. But another part of the story is the the queer part of the story. This the relationship between. Um, Gabrielle and Mary, which uh, in which Polly at one point in the film was talking about sexuality and I believe it was Freud who talked about the an aspect of it that uh, it was just an interesting part of the film, but when the film came out. um, I'm kind of curious about the reaction and now, as we sit here, as you said, 35 years later, a very different i'm sure a very different environment, the film finds itself being released into right.
1: Yeah, a very different environment. I mean, at the time, in 1995, I made a kind of more explicitly lesbian um, love story called When Night is Falling, which is part of the retrospective. But we had a picture just of the two women kissing, fully clothed, just two women kissing. And the New York Times refused to run that ad. That was in, like, in '95. 95 so like, in 95, so this is like uh, uh you know 1987. I hadn't seen any films that had kind of um, women like an, an unapologetically out woman. The 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 play by Anne Marie McDonald, who was an extraordinary uh, novelist actually. She wrote a book called Fall on Your Knees that was on the uh you know Oprah Winfrey's uh, b- b- best book of the month kind of thing she was just an uncomplicatedly out lesbian. And I don't think there had been a character like that before on the screen that I had seen anyway. Um, you know, I'd seen them die. I'd seen them be tortured. I'd seen them, I'd seen that be the only reason for their existence on screen and not have any other kind of life, just sort of any kind of queerness or, 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 or sort of non heteronormative sexuality was, uh, always had to be the big subject. So to actually have another subject as well um, was was a, a kind of a radical choice. I was inspired, in fact, at the time when I saw My Beautiful Landerette by Stephen Frears with Daniel Day-Lewis and I had seen, oh, so he actually introduces all the characters, introduces the problems of the film and sets things afoot, creates the environment and the tone, and then introduces their sexuality. That's the way to go, actually. So have us know these people, care about them, see them as full humans, and then introduce sexuality was was definitely a kind of you know sugar on the pill, sneaky approach to introducing some kind of you know gay content, which was you know I was I was queer and I came from a Dutch Calvinist environment. I had so much self-loathing you can't imagine and the, and at the time, I didn't want to be reduced to that. Ever do queer characters? I felt like, ugh, if I was too open about it. So, so the film was a little bit of an of a of an approach. Uh, I mean, an uh, answer to a kind of a level of closetedness. A uh, 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 assumption that the audience is going to reject this material. So I had to construct it like the whole thing. This is why outsiders are so often artists, because you had to you know, I had to invent forms, I had to invent a style, a structure that would let me dress the things that I wanted to address. Just before this interview, I was trying to, I was asking myself, how is this film relevant now? Because I'm so fully, you know, aware of what my intentions were and what my, what the world was like at the time of making, but how it's received by a young queer audience now would be really interesting to me, you know, like that would be, I would love to know, you know, what this is almost like a historical document of as a, you know, a comedy um, about uh, with 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 queer characters in 1987. Like, how would it play now? How would it? Uh, how would it play now? I'm, I'm curious. Well, would...
0: I in some manner of speaking, you may find out um, coming up on. March 18th at the Alamo Draft House in uh, in Los Angeles I'm sure there'll be questions that'll come up over well, the, the course of your conversation
1: it, the person moderating it is from the advocate too so that, that that aspect of things will be discussed I'm sure
0: the film is as we've been talking about opening in the Alamo Draft House here in Los Angeles on March 18th which <clears throat> Patricia will be in town for that for Q&As starting on that Friday night
1: Actually, it's in 10 other markets, too, markets, cities. Well, then let's bring it on. So, Yeah, uh, yeah. Philadelphia, Denver, lots of places. So um, I, I can... Is
0: that through Kino
1: Lorber? It yeah, would be... Kino is doing it, yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, so I'm going to go... Okay, I've, all of this information will be posted to the website um, for Film School Radio. It's also... Yeah, it's in Ottawa, Montreal, <laughs> Cleveland, Coral Gables, Denver, Iowa City, Indianapolis, Philadelphia. Vancouver, Salt Lake City, all of these cities, you should be looking for this. The film, again, is called I've Heard the Mermaids Singing. It is a wonderful film, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And congratulations to Sheila McCarthy for her performance. And uh, how, how is Sheila still with us? Oh
1: yeah. oh, yeah. She's showing up in all kinds of interesting places. She's really kept herself alive creatively, yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, Patricia, Rosamah, thank you. Thank you for the film, but thank you for this wonderful conversation about many things. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank, thank, you. You. Bye. thank you. You've been listening to film school radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films.